chapter 2 this evening. Now, we spent this morning looking at the characteristics that Ruth and Boaz found so attractive in each other that saw them fall in love so quickly in, in the story. We saw uh, Ruth being a hard-working, virtuous woman. She was gracious. She was humble. And so not only was she attracting the attention of Boaz, but the other people around about her noticed the attitude and the character that she had. Then we saw how Boaz was also hardworking, but he, in addition to that, was kind and spiritual and generous. He was quick to verbalize his admiration and respect for what Ruth had come through and how she had come through it. And so right from the start, the relationship is characterized by giving respect, not demanding respect. So often people demand respect. But here they start by giving it, and they find that they get it in return. We can be quick to fall into bad habits in our marriages, can't we? When it comes to settling into ruts and, and routines, and we don't think too much of it because in and of itself, isolated, it's not a big deal. But whenever it becomes habit, and, and, and we weave these habits together, and, and cumulatively they add up, and it erodes the relationship, it erodes respect, it, it erodes the openness and the trust and the protectiveness that we talked about this morning. We should seek to be with people who are like Ruth, like Boaz. We should strive to be like Ruth. We should strive to be like Boaz in our relationships. I was keen to press the practical side of that this morning, uh, of what we were reading. And I know maybe for some of you, you felt maybe it wasn't all that relevant for where you are and your uh, particular circumstances. But with many young people, teenagers, and those who hope to get married soon in our morning service, it's important that they hear it. It's important that they know. Uh, and it's significant for what, uh, it is significant what you look for in someone you're going to date, who you're going to marry. Uh, it is no small thing. And so we could all point to perhaps broken hearts in our own histories or, or in close family circles or wider family and see that it's so important that we make wise choices when it comes to this side of things. That's the whole point of the first sermon in this entire series that we did last week. It may not seem like a big deal to you to, to move 30, 40 miles home from Bethlehem round the coastline uh, to Moab. It may not seem like a big deal but there was an underlying issue. See, what happens is whenever we try to hold on to the lordship of our own lives, whenever we sort of say, okay, God, look, listen, I'll give you sort of this stuff to kind of deal with, but I kind of want to hold on to this bit. I want to hold on to the house that I'm going to live in. I want to hold on to the, the job that I'm going to apply for. I want to hold on to the person that I'm going to date or, or, or romance or, or marry or whoever it hap whatever happens to be. What that really says is, okay, God, I don't really trust you with those ones. Those are too important to give to you. So I'm just going to hold on to these ones because you might not give me the results that I want. I'd rather sort of micromanage that bit myself. And we refuse to hand them over to God. We refuse to trust him with it. And so what happens is then we fall into dangerous patterns. And so often it's those bits that are not handed over to God that can cause us so much hurt. The, the job, I mean, if you're stuck in a miserable job, isn't it the most terrible thing? It's horrible. It, it, it consumes everything else. I've never found, met someone who's happy in life but unhappy at work. It kind of just cover, you know, encroaches on everything else. 
Same if you're, you're, you're stuck in a toxic marriage or a bad marriage. And these small decisions can add up. And yet when we get to Ruth chapter 2, it is such a huge difference. And it's a real contrast to Ruth chapter 1 in the approach and the attitude towards decision making. Ruth's life is marked by faith. She heard about the law of gleaning that God would provide if they were simply willing to go and, and do the work. And so she went and she labored and she found that God provided. She trusted the word of God. Now, you know, her attitude might have been like, I'm new here. I don't really know what's going on. The rules kind of seem to be fairly simple. We kind of do as God asks us to do. Okay, if that's the rules, then let's, let's do it. If God is so great, then yeah, okay, why wouldn't you not do it? I'll go, I'll obey, I'll trust. And so her, her life is marked by faith. I'm going to trust God. I may be new to this, but if, if he says do it, then, then yeah, let's do it. And so her life is marked by faith, but it's also marked by grace. Boaz sees her, she fall, he falls for her, and he shows a kindness to her. And her attitude is, why, why would someone like you want to show any favor to me? Why, why, why would someone like you be so interested in, in me? I'm an outsider. I'm a foreigner. He goes, no, no, you're not. Not anymore. I can see it. You're, you're one of us. And he welcomes her in. And he showed her favor that certainly um, no one, you know, on the face of it, she didn't deserve it any more than any other woman working in the field. And so when we finished off this morning, we had what the old Hollywood film directors called the meet-cute. Uh, this moment when the two love interests of the story, they meet for the first time. And when you watch a lot of movies, you know, and I, I do enjoy my films, uh, if you watch some, sometimes that, that meet-cute, that moment can be awkward, it can be funny, it can be hostile sometimes, it, and, and it can be funny just to see how it works. Sometimes it's unrequited, uh, and sometimes it's... And you just, and you go, oh, okay, so I know what kind of film this is going to be. I kind of know how the story's going to go now because he's got to convince her or something's going to have to happen. And it all starts to work out. Here, the Bible's meet cute. shows a man who is rich and wealthy and busy, who pauses because of her beauty, but is drawn to her by her character. Beauty can make you take a second look. But what do you see when you look the second time? It's got to be more than skin deep. And that's what happened with Ruth and Boaz. He, um, he speaks with affection and tenderness and gives validation and a sense of worth to someone who felt that she should not have any. And that's kind of where we left it this morning. So we'll pick it up again. And Boaz is speaking to Ruth. And he kind of just prays this blessing over her. Says the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You're one of us now. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. Ruth didn't go into the field that day to find a man. She wasn't kind of one of these ones who's always on the lookout to see what's happening. She was trying to get food for herself. She was trying to get food for her and her family, for, for Naomi. And Boaz calls it, verse 12, you're resting under the wings of God. You're trusting him. You're not trying to take things under yourself and say, if I can get myself a rich man, then I can move forward. And if I can do this, and I can... No, he says, look, I'm just trusting God. 
you're resting on God's hands here. And he, see, and he just says to her, look, you may be from Moab, but you're not a Moabite anymore. I can see you're resting in the God of Israel. He encourages her and he builds up her faith and he gives her credence in a society that probably wasn't inclined to give her any. God had said, look, you don't go near these Moabite people. You don't touch them. You don't, don't bring them into your homes. Don't bring them into our society. They're dark. They're twisted. They've got a lot going on. And we've, we've talked about that, so we'll not go over it again. And so when she was expecting hassle, and she's expecting people to look down on her, here Boaz, the, who is going to become a picture of Christ as the book develops, shows her kindness. And what a wonderful picture of Christ that is right at the start. I don't deserve kindness. I'm going to show you kindness. And it was clear that she meant what she said in chapter 1. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. You know, sometimes people say things they don't mean. I know that might be shocking. I know this could be breaking news for someone. But sometimes people don't always mean what they say. Um, For example, oh, how are you? You know, I was thinking about you. Were you? Were you really? Were you really sort of concerned or were you just thinking about what the latest gossip was? Or a good one for the Christians. Ah, I'm praying for you. I'll pray for you. Then you sort of go, ah, it doesn't matter. Whatever. And it just doesn't come up again. You see, I don't think people intentionally always lie. But there are things sometimes that are said even with a grand gesture. And when it comes down to it, it's not meant. We get caught in the heat of the moment. And we get caught up in a moment's passion and say, I love you. Maybe you just love how you feel in that moment. Maybe you kind of just love the the romance of it, or you kind of like how, but actually in the cold light of day, not really in love with this person. Let's let's get together. Let's let's break up. And then in the cold light of day, how do I try and rewind this conversation? How do I try and undo the things that I've tr- I've already said to people? People go to church even, and they get these emotional experiences, and they feel that maybe Jesus can wave a magic wand over the life and fix everything and everything's going to be fine. And so they say, yes, Lord, come into my life. I'm sorry for my mistakes. Let's move forward. We have that magic wand. And in the end, they make a commitment to God, but they didn't really mean it. It was kind of in the moment. It was one of those ones, and now they're trying to figure out, well, how do I kind of get the best of both worlds? Because I know I said it, but I don't really want to give up my old life. I don't really have, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I feel guilty for, for stuff that I've done wrong, but I don't really have that many intentions of stopping. And we kind of approach God the way Parliament approaches the Queen, you know. So yeah, we know you're technically head of state, but, you know, you don't really have any real power. We treat God like that. It says, yes, God, you know, look, if anyone asks, yeah, you're king. <laughs> but I want to hold on to the power. I want to hold on to the authority of my life. And yet Boaz looks at Ruth, and it would seem that within a very short space of time, 
she's been able to prove to people who have been watching her that not only does she say what she means, but she means what she says, which is a really important characteristic, I think. And she can do it with a graciousness. She can do it with a tenderness. It's a wonderful, wonderful quality. And so he prays this blessing over her. First 12 stuff. The Lord repay you. The Lord give you a full reward. And yet what we're going to see is that God will use Boaz to answer this very prayer that he's praying. That over the course, even of this chapter and the next chapter, she will come to rest under his wings. She's going to come to rest at his feet. And the relationship's going to develop. And he's going to be the one who protects. And he's going to be the one who provides and fights for her. He's a godly man. She's a godly woman. And so they speak freely about God to each other. Now, again... I said this this morning, I'll repeat myself. Ladies, make sure you are looking for a man who is godly. I remember, oh, okay, I'll tell, I'll tell you the story anyway, all right? Hopefully they don't listen to the podcast. I, I remember, um, I'll not tell you where, okay, but I remember watching a guy, and he was a bit of a ladies' man, oh, sorry, he thought he was a bit of a ladies' man, and dear help him, he tried, okay? He tried, all right? Full marks for effort, very little in terms of results. And then he came in, and he seemed to have a different strategy, okay? Now, I don't know. Guys, if you want to take notes, I don't know. Um, but he seemed to learn a couple of Bible references from the book of Revelation, you know? And so he managed to kind of sprinkle a wee bit of this into the conversation, and some of the young girls that, that were kind of in, in and around the vicinity, I was, I was conscious of, they're going, oh, he's so deep and spiritual. Oh, he knows revelation. And I'm cringing thinking, oh my goodness, this is actually working. And, and he's using the Bible as a chat-up line. And... It's giving the impression of godliness when it's not really there. And it was working because the girls involved were, were so busy looking for something that was real, they couldn't discern that it wasn't actually real. It had the appearance of reality, and so they wanted it. Ladies, make sure that the man that you're with really is godly and doesn't just have the appearance of godliness. You can fake it whenever you're there and then shows his true colors when he's somewhere else. Men, find a godly woman. Proverbs 31 says, Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Husbands, make sure you're godly for the sake of your wife. Wives, make sure you're godly for the sake of your husbands. Love someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Stop trying to be first in someone else's life. Christ should come first in their life. Okay, so love someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. That's the right order. And it'll teach us all the way bit of humility along the way, which is good. We get so obsessed, I think, sometimes with physical appearances. 
and uh, that doesn't stop whenever we get older. In fact, um, Ruth has the girls, hopefully they'll be in bed by now. They've had a couple of late nights, and so they are in bed right now. I'd imagine Ruth will be in the bed about 20 minutes now as well, if she can get away with it. But I left the house, and they were doing makeup. And uh, Bethany, who is four, was all into it. And I said, okay, Ruth doesn't listen to the podcast, so this will be fine. Uh, we were in the car yesterday, and she was putting on her makeup. And Bethany happened to say, Mommy, what, what's that that you're putting on? She goes, oh, it's concealer. And Bethany says, is that for your chins? I thought, ah, I, I near crashed the car. I was... Brilliant. Brilliant. That's got nothing to do with the message. I just thought I had to tell you. We get obsessed with physical appearances, and it starts, it would seem, younger and younger. You know, my girls, four and six, they, they know their way around the makeup kit. They know how to put the stuff on. They know how to blush and blend and all the rest of it. I don't know who taught them, but they know. And it doesn't, it's not really something that I think we, we will easily grow out of either. Cosmetics and surgeries and procedures and, and the popularity of them prove that we are fighting still to hold on to physical expectations that somebody else puts on us. <laughs> okay, I told you a story about Ruth. I'll tell you a story about me. Someone asked me uh, about three weeks ago if I was going to dye my grey hairs. I, you know, and so at this point, I says I've got three um, well you've got a few grey hairs there and I said no way I says, the Bible says they're a crown I've earned these grey hairs I'm keeping them and no doubt I'll earn a few more soon enough but we've got to learn that there's more than just the physical we'll have to go for something deeper now, uh, at the mealtime Boaz said to her come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and, she pa- and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. It, it's part of the, the, the dating process. He's courting her. He's wooing her in the culture. He, he speaks up in front of the other men around him and says, Come and sit with us. Come and sit at the table where that's reserved for kind of the employees and for the, the management level executives. And so what he's doing is in front of everyone, he's identifying with her. He's saying, I want you to know that I'm showing her favor. I want you to know that, I, that I'm, I'm interested in her. I, I'm not trying to play it cool. I'm not trying to keep the field open. I'm showing you. I'm telling you. I'm interested. I'm declaring my interest here. And you can imagine the other men and the other woman looking at each other as she gets up from a corner on the floor, uh, sort of with her smaller portions and, and sort of the unroasted, and coming up and sitting at the table and um, making eye contact with each other. And they're going, you know, because it doesn't matter how old you are, when you see a romance blossoming in front of you, everyone turns into a 12-year-old. That just seems to be how it works. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. It happens. But Boaz isn't worried about 
what, what happening, anyone else is thinking. He wants them to know, he wants Ruth to know that his intentions are clear. And so she can eat and is satisfied. You ever had a, a big meal? Maybe you had a big meal out today. And afterwards, you put the knife and fork down on the plate. You kind of just put your hands on your stomach and you just sigh, we happy sigh. Oh, that was good. I'm stuffed. I'm satisfied. It's always a nice sensation. But imagine then if we bring someone like Ruth, who had been enduring famine conditions, who had been living in poverty, struggling and scrounging for food. Imagine what it would be like for them then to feel satisfied. How rich that would feel. How wonderful that would be. This is a sense of the grace and the favor that Boaz is giving to the widow Ruth from Moab. And you know, I'm saving the, the, the Christ comparisons for later in the series, but I just can't help but not say this. Aren't you glad that we have a Redeemer who satisfies? That, that's, that's Christ. I mean, when we're struggling, looking for something, trying to get a handle on things, trying to get our on in our, in our own, and we're trying to do the best to our own ability, and then Christ comes and not only does he meet the need of, of, of our sin and, and dealing with our guilt and dealing with our shame and dealing with our past and dealing with our baggage, not only does he meet that need, but we find that we are satisfied. Isn't it wonderful to know that the one who loves us and the one who provides for us, he doesn't do it by half. He doesn't do half measures, but he saves to the uttermost. And, and his love overflows in our lives. And his grace is lavished upon us. This is the language that God uses. There's no half measures. He satisfies us. Psalm 63 says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you. And so she rose then to glean. Hopefully. Move on. Verse 15, please. Thank you. Uh, she rose to glean. Boaz um, instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do, do not reproach her. And also pull out some of, from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. In other words, uh, let her give her an all-access pass. And make sure that yours extra dropped for her, so that she can go home uh, with a mountain of stuff. And so she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And so he, his attitude is, okay, we've ate. I, I've kind of treated her a nice meal. But now, lads, okay, she came here for stuff. Let's make sure she goes home with a mountain of stuff. And it's just this generosity. He wants to give. He wants to meet the need. And so he, he just says to the guys, okay, look, listen, make sure she can get this. Make sure you, you, you leave some for her. It's my gift to her. Notice though that she still has to go work for it. He doesn't just hand her it. She still has to glean. She still has to beat. She still has, there's, there's a dignity still attached to it. It's not, it's not, you sit down there, little girl. I'm just going to take over and I'm going to sort this all out for you. But he sees that in her character is this desire to, to work hard and to earn her keep and to earn the right to be known and earn the right. To, and, and so he he. he doesn't overrule her and I says, okay, I see what she's doing. I see the kind of person she is. So, so allow her to work. Allow her to be fruitful. Allow her to, to feel that she's part of our community. 
you know, God has given us everything that we need right here in this book. But it's not going to just land into your brain without you reading it. You're not going to feed your soul unless you start gleaning from it. And it's all well and good having a, a wee word for the day that has a wee verse that somebody else has gleaned. Or, or listening to sermons online or YouTube or re, re, whatever happens to be. It will never satisfy you the same way as when you go, as when you see what the master's left out just for you. In the same way Boaz says, look, make sure you leave something out for her. So when she goes and she's working, she can find it and she's satisfied and she gets the riches of it. In the same way, look, we can live off handouts from other people. That's fine. But it's never as satisfying as the food that God has left out just for us in his word. Just for us. And, and I encourage you to get into the word uh, and get deep into it because it satisfies. It meets the need. And it's all well and good, other people giving you stuff. It doesn't match the stuff that you can get for yourself. She took it up and went to the, into the city. Uh, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Uh-huh. There's a bit of a smile going on in her face. And the first thing, it must be kind of just one of these things that sort of Naomi was able to tell. So I said, oh, he put the skip in your step. <laughs> he put the twinkle into your eye. What's going on? And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. I, lo- I just love this. I-, I just love how, again, when you see a romance book, everyone becomes a 12-year-old. Ooh. Ooh. Who is it? He's some boy. And, and yet here's something that's really wonderful. We spent last Sunday night talking about how bitter Naomi had become, and, and rightly so. She's, she's moved away from home. She lost her husband. And she's had to bury her two sons. Do not underestimate how horrible that would be. Do not for a moment just gloss over that as if it's nothing. Ach, Naomi, get over yourself. Hold on, she, this is big loss. And now she's coming back and she's living as a widow. They forfeited their land they f- whenever they moved to Moab. They've lost all that they had. They lost the title. They've lost the, the, the credentials. And they're living in poverty. And all this bitterness and anger and sorrow has really manifested itself in her. And we've been looking at that. We've seen it. To the point where when we get to she comes home to Bethlehem at the end of the last chapter. She says, don't call me Naomi, because that means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, for God has dealt bitterly with me. I'm bitter. I am bitter. And yet now she begins to see that God may not be moving against her anymore. And her attitude begins to change, because all we've heard from her is the negativity. Don't come with me, Orpah. Don't come with me, 
Ruth. Just go back. You make a better life for yourselves back in Moab without God, without me. You're better off without God, so, so don't worry. Go away. Leave me alone. All we've heard is, you come with me, it'll be a hard life. All we've heard is, oh, I've got no more sons for you to marry. I've got nothing more to give you. All we've heard is, even from this chapter, fine, go. It's sharp. It's not pleasant. She's not acting like Naomi. Pleasant. She is Mara, bitter. And, but actually, she's starting to change. Her, her whole attitude is beginning to thaw. She's actually turned into a matchmaker now. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. Now she's talking about the Lord in a completely different way. This seems to have just changed. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the, the man is a close relative to ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all the harvest. And then we said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in other fields you be assaulted, which seems to be a rather aggressive thing to say. But you see, suddenly Naomi sees that there's a path to, to redemption. Not because she didn't realize that there was one before, but because now all of a sudden, the idea not of redemption but of a redeemer is there all of a sudden the redeemer has a face now the redeemer has a name now the, the, the realization of the hope, the realization of restoration is now starting to become clearer now and so she begins to see how God has been working that day in the field and through Ruth and through Boaz and she begins to get excited and so says you stick with this guy, don't run away from it don't move on to somewhere else you go back to the same place you go back to the same man because this man can give us hope he's a redeemer never underestimate the hurt that this woman has gone through and never underestimate what hope can do for such a person in such a situation hope can move you from bitterness to blessing and she saw the the haul of, of grain that Ruth brought home. She saw the smile on Ruth's satisfied face. And so look at this. Hope was not something that she could manufacture for herself. It wasn't something that she was able to kind of, if, if she tried hard enough or thought positively, things were going to change. But actually, this was something that sprung up when her focus was put on someone else. And if you want to break it down, she had hope because of who the Redeemer was. He was a wealthy relative. He had the means, the legal means, the financial means to, to, to rescue. Hope then came from, from what the Redeemer did. He showed kindness. He didn't have to show kindness, but he did. He took a personal interest in the situation. That brings hope. He's interested. He, he, he's concerned. And then there was hope because of what her Redeemer said. Boaz, he stated his desire to make Ruth happy. Don't you go into any other fields. You come back to mine tomorrow. You look after, these men will look after you. These men will make sure that you're cared for. These men will make sure that you go home, that you never starve in this land. And he kept her close to him. Now for those who are saved in church tonight, 
we should always have hope. But it's important that just because you're saved that you don't forget that you can't manufacture your own hope. Sometimes we, we, we fall into this pattern of we get saved, but then we still play pop psychology with ourselves. And so we kind of try to put a biblical twist on just how the world thinks, and it's dangerous. We can't manufacture our own happiness. Plenty of people try, but it's not possible. Our hope is given to us from one place, the man Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. And we can say, well, we can hope because of who Jesus is. He is the means to rescue us. He died and rose again and now intercedes for us. John 14 tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one can get to the Father except through him. Which means we can have hope because there's a way back to God. There's life back to God because of who he is. There's hope because of what Jesus did. Galatians 3.13 just sums the whole thing up so well. It says, um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our place. That's what he did. And what did he say? Well, Christ in John 10, verse 20, it says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. What hope that is for a Christian who's maybe messed up a wee bit. No one's going to take you out of his hand. You're saved. You may not be where you ought to be, but you'll never go back to where you used to be. And the point is that there is no hope like the hope that we can find in Christ. Second Peter tells us that he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Which is why we need to glean them for ourselves and get into the Word and understand it and anchor ourselves in it. You can't anchor it in other people's anchors. But you need it for yourself because that's where, where you believe it and you can trust it. No matter how you feel tonight, no matter what your circumstances, we rejoice in the hope that Christ gives us. Our hope isn't about sheer optimism and wishful thinking. It's not fantasy but it's the confidence that God is going to come through for us. You imagine uh, your car breaks down, okay? It's a dark, stormy night. It's lashing with rain, and just the car dies. You go, oh, yeah, I can't fix this. And so you call the AA or the RAC or whoever it happens to be that you're with, um, or you ring your dad or whatever, <laughs> whatever you're inclined to do. And they say, right, we'll be with you in 20 minutes, half an hour. What do you do? You watch, all right? Whatever way you think they're going to come, you watch, you're either watching out the windscreen or the back window, or you're, you're looking, and you're looking. You see a car. Oh, maybe that's them. And you're full of hope. Maybe it's them. Maybe it's them. Oh, maybe. Now, it's not... It's not wishful thinking that maybe they'll show up. If, if we get a good break, then it'll be them. But the hope... When you're sitting in that car, the hope, the expectation is based on the fact that you know that one of those cars coming will be them eventually. They are coming. They are on their way. And so your hope is built on the certainty of that. But the hope and the excitement and the expectation is, I just don't know when. 
And so I'm hoping that the next car around the corner is them. I'm hoping that the next lights that I see will be orange flashy ones. That's hope that the Christian has. It's built on the certainty that God will come through, but we're just not sure all the time of how he's going to do it or when it's going to happen. But we know that he is going to come through. So often, it's not optimism. Optimism's not ringing the RAC or the AA and still hope that they're going to stop for you and help. That's wishful thinking. That's, you can say you're hoping, but it's a different hope entirely to someone who's expecting them to come. That's the difference in the hope that the Christian has, as best as I can explain it. Now, notice, though, that Naomi is hopeful, but it would have been not out of the ordinary if she says, well, look, listen, he's our redeemer. So, listen, I, I totally understand that if you marry him, I think it's good that you marry him, but listen, just remember, Ruth, no one's going to love you the way my boy loved you. R- remember, Ruth, my boy should be your number one. You keep that wedding ring on. Don't you forget about him. I've never been in that situation. I, I wouldn't know what I would be thinking in that scenario. And yet, Naomi is fully supportive. She could have been a mother outlaw instead of a mother in law, but that's not how she was. Now, I have a great mother in law. My wife has an even better one. <laughs> but it's only when you hear stories of bad mother in laws that I think you really begin to appreciate how good we have it. And I could, again, tell you stories. I heard about one girl who got married, and when she was away on her honeymoon, her mother-in-law opened up all her presents and spent all of her vouchers and gift money on decorating their home. Vouchers that she had hid in her underwear drawer. But she found them. And continued for about the first seven months of the marriage, making packed lunches for her husband. He was binning the lunches she made and getting his mum's. Bizarre mother-in-laws. I love the show Everybody Loves Raymond. If you watch it, it's always really good for mother-in-laws and all the wee jokes about that. But you know, I think parents, they get this stage when they raise their kids, they literally, physically have to tell their children, once you're married, I'm done. Once you're married, I have finished my job. I, I will cease to parent you. I release you into the wild. <laughs> Every marriage, you know, you have this line, who gives this bride to be married? And I do. It, it's a formality, but it's true. Yes, you still give them advice and whatever. You're not deleting their mobile number or anything on them, but you let them know, listen, you're connected to them now. You're dependent on them now. This man, this woman, that's who you are dependent on now. Whether you fully agree with them or not, you let them go and you let them live by that mistake, if you see it that way. Too many parents, I think, refuse to let go. And it makes it hard for a new couple to create their own family. And so she kept close all the, to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, so that's the end of 
the chapter. Now notice just a wee sub-theme across this chapter. Providence. God is at work in a supernatural way, naturally. Guy meets girl. Guy falls in love with girl. Girl falls in love with guy. Sovereign God pulling the stream, uh, the threads of it all together. It is called providence. Now, don't confuse providence with miracles. They're two very different things. People say, oh, it's a miracle, Jeff. I say, why? What is it? What's happened? Oh, the baby's been born. Right, well, that's not a miracle. That's not a miracle. It happens all the time. It happens in every hospital, every day, everywhere, and has happened for, for millennia. It's nothing new. It's not a miracle. It's exciting. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Could I do it? No, of course not. But it's within the scope of natural biology of how God has made us. A miracle is when God overrides those rules. He breaks up those rules, whether it's raising the dead or walking in water. That, those things don't happen unless God breaks the rules that he has made. Right? Your child getting up by themselves early and being ready for school on time might feel like a miracle, but it's not. It's close, but it's not. It's still within the realms of possibility. But providence is when God weaves the natural, everyday decisions and everyday events of our lives together for his purposes and for his glory. Sometimes we can be guilty of looking just out for miracles. You know, we want angels to appear. We want the skies to open and we want this crystal clear kind of picture of here's what you're supposed to do. Here's the job you're supposed to go for. Here's the person you want to marry. Here's the decision that you need to make. Here's the house that you're going to buy. Here's the, here's the person who's going to buy your house. Here's the car you're going to get. Here's the job you're going to get. And we want kind of the miracles to kind of show up and, and leave us without any doubt. But God rarely works in miracles. That's why they're called miracles. But he does work providentially all the time. From a natural perspective, the book of Ruth is the story of a family and a famine and an agricultural society, and it just so happens that they just so happen meets a guy, and they just so happen to have a child, and that someone happened to be then the great-granddaughter of David, who happened to be uh, great, 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 whatever of Jesus. But providence shows us that there's more to it than that. The timing of it. Chapter 1 tells us that they arrive at the barley harvest. That's providential. Any other time of the year, Boaz isn't in the field. Any other time of the year, he's not in the field. Except for this window of a couple of weeks. They're away for 10 years, and if they just so happen to hit the, the right fortnight that he's in the field, that's incredible. And look, this is Bethlehem, the breadbasket of Israel. There are lots of fields. There are lots of men and women in these fields, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people scattered across acres and acres, 360 degrees around the town of Bethlehem. And Ruth just so happens to come to Boaz's field. She just so happens to catch his eye. He just so happens to see her. He just happens to be single. He just happens to be a relative. He just happens to find Ruth attractive. Are any of these things miraculous? No. But are they the weaving together of lives by a sovereign, provident God? Yes. We quoted Zechariah last week, do not despise the day of small beginnings. The point is you have no idea what God is doing in your life with the little small things that happen every day. You don't know what's happening each step of the process. 
how he seeks to weave the story of your life together to restore hope, to restore love, to restore that which has been lost, to give you that second chance that you've been longing for. And you know, none of it, none of it, none of it would have happened if Ruth had not lived by faith and obeyed God's law. God says, go, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the fields. I'm going to trust him. Wouldn't have happened if Boaz had not lived by grace and chose to live a life marked by generosity and showed favor. And it wouldn't have happened, as we'll see next week, if Naomi had not learned to live by hope. Are they reacted to God and the little things accumulated into the big things that God had in store for them at the end of the book? Ruth may have decided that she wasn't going to bother going to the field. Boaz may have decided that he wasn't interested in blessing his workforce that day. Naomi may have held on to her bitterness, but small things make a big difference. Don't despise what God can do in your life, even if it has a small beginning. Everything has a small beginning. Give it over to him. Give it all over to him and see what he might do in time. Go to bed tonight resting on the soft pillow of providence, knowing that he will work all things together for good to those who, are, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Do you love him? Then rest on him. Let that be your pillow tonight. Does that mean you'll know every life changing detail? No. Does it mean you'll get a sort of a text letting you know a wee update or a wee where no you'll not get you'll not get to see the blueprint but what you will have is the deep trust of the architect and that's so much better I'm going to ask the musicians to come up we're going to sing one more song and then I'll close in prayer thank you guys <laughs>